Last Sunday was a special Sunday for us. Last Sunday was also a heavy Sunday. Uh, it was the last uh, Sunday that we had with a dear family in our church who are heading back to the mission field. Uh, some three years ago, we sent them out into the mission field. It was in the midst of Rona and riots and all the craziness around that. It was definitely not an ideal, an ideal time to say goodbye to someone that you love. This family in particular, the the husband of the family was a member of, of our staff, a member of our pastoral team, uh, ran missions, preaching, and all kinds of things. He's just an incredible uh, man of God. And so it was a, a great Sunday, in particular in the evening service, for him to bear his soul with the, the church that he loves and the church that has sent him out. It was their first, their, their first time back with us after many years. And so we had just two Sundays with them, and that was the last Sunday. And so it was a, it was a bit of a, of a heavy Sunday for us as they head back to a mission field in a place where it is illegal to share the gospel of Jesus and convert the lost. So, so we, we sent them out into a place that is a bit of a, a danger zone. And that danger zone is just a temporary training ground where they're working on language acquisition to go into a place of greater danger so as to intentionally follow and pursue our Lord and His command to reach the unreached peoples of the earth with the good news of His Son who has come for us. The first step in that journey is learning that uh, a foreign language, a foreign language that would act as a lingua franca for acquiring yet another language of a people whose language has yet to hear of Jesus in, the, in their tribe and in their tongue. It is a long journey. It is a long journey to, to work on learning a language, yet to learn another language, let alone to be in a foreign country that is hostile to your faith. As we have recently studied on Sundays, reaching the unreached is very important to followers of Jesus Christ because He is our King, He is our Head, and He has given us these marching orders. I'll put the passages in front of you. They should be familiar to you if you've been a part of this church for any given time, because it's something that we talk about all the time. That is the great commission of Jesus to go and to make disciples. He commissioned His early followers that He trained for a period of some three years. He commissioned them after living among them, after training them, after they, they witnessed his vicarious death and his victorious resurrection, before he ascended into the heavens, he commissioned them and he said, you go to the ends of the earth and you find all peoples. This uh, going into the earth, this uh, uh, drawing of all peoples unto God is a theme that we find from the very beginning of, the, book of, of uh, the books of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We see the promise to Abram. We see the gathering of the nations. We see that God is working out a plan of redemption that involves Him claiming a people for Himself that have representatives of all tribes and, and tongues. It's a, a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing for us as a church to be participating in this collectively as, as you give, collectively as we make budget, collectively as we pour our sweat and our blood into this and we send people out. We are participating in this commission that was given to Christ's followers that continues today because there are still tribes and there are still tongues that have yet to hear of Him. The work continues. Last Sunday was special because we said goodbye to our beloved DRC missionaries who are, who are focused with laser precision on this, and we are participants in that work. The title of my sermon this morning is The Beat Goes On. It is a play on the 1970s song, The Whispers, and other modern colloquialisms that we use, and The Beat Goes On where, you know, in the face of like transition or hardship or, or saying goodbye, we tell ourselves, we face our emotions, we face the transition, well, the beat goes on. There's, there's work that still needs to be done. And on a Sunday such as this, after last Sunday, it seemed pastorally uh, for me to help us to process from the Word of God what it is that we are up to and to remind ourselves of the great privilege that we have in participating in the Great Commission. Just like the rhythm of a beat that keeps moving along gets you through heavy emotions when you're feeling down and you pop a little beat on and 
and you get your mind distracted off of the things before you, just like the rhythm of a beat, so too we have the beat of the Gospel that continues on and on and on and on like the rhythm of a beat. And this beat provides us comfort. This beat gives us a, a, a charge that is to go and make disciples of all nations. As our loved ones have left, as we are feeling uh, heavy emotions and saying goodbye and missing them, it seemed timely for us to be reminded that the beat goes on. The mission carries on. And as we have sent them out, we have, Delray Church, work to do. So would you please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy and find your way to the third chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3. This book, or rather this letter known as 1 Timothy, appears in a section of the New Testament that is known as the pastoral epistles. An epistle is just a fancy way of saying a letter. We have these pastoral letters that are written in this section of the New Testament by the Apostle Paul to give instructions to church leaders, most notably to Timothy and to Titus. Paul wanted these leaders and the church as a whole to know the beat goes on. The beat goes on. It's hard, it, it, it's, it, it's emotional when you are living your life on mission, when you are sacrificing, when you are, when you, when you are about the gospel work. It, it is a hard thing because people you love are going to be sent to danger zones and, and, and trying to hold down the fort so that you have a sending place is a difficult work. And Paul writes about this in the pastoral epistles. He wants these leaders to see, as I said, the beat goes on. Mind you, the beat does not go on by itself, for you see, the beat is carried by the church obedient and triumphant through the essential and indispensable power of God the Holy Spirit. He, the Spirit, is essential and indispensable because Jesus sent Him, the Spirit, to birth the church. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. So the church was future. The church, in the words of the Apostle Paul, is a mysterion. It wasn't something that was revealed in the Hebrew Bible. This was something that was new that came with Christ. I will build my church. That was what he was doing as he was training those disciples. He would commission them and, and they would become the church. In John 16, Jesus spoke of sending the Spirit to those disciples, saying that He would convict the lost of sin, and He would guide them into the truth, glorifying the Son. I will build My church. I will send the Spirit. You wait for the Spirit to come and then go. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, sent from the Son. Jesus' disciples witnessed what Jesus said that He would do. He would build His church by the Spirit. This brings us to the first point on your outline this morning, the Lord's church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, draw your eyes at verse 14, please. The Apostle Paul writes, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. The first point on your outline, the Lord's church. Paul is describing the church. He describes the church as alive, as a pillar, as a support of truth. Here in these verses, he describes the conduct and the life of the church, which he describes as a family household. So on your outline under the Lord's church, you have the first subpoint: conduct in life. Every family has a way of doing things. Every family has a way of doing things. And our families have our quirks and whatever. And, and you get together with other families and you're like, oh, wow, that family really, you know, is different in that way or whatever. You come to my house on the 4th of July, we get down. Some people don't get down like that. We get down. You go, wow, in the Jones household, they get a little carried away on the 4th of July. You hang out with other families, in particular if you're a parent and you have kids, your kids will start to notice this. Uh, this, this happens a lot with my family when we get together with other families. Our little ones, they start to say, Hey, Dad, they let their kids do this. Hey, Dad, can I have that? Because they let their kids have that. And I go, No, you are stuck in our family, and Joneses don't do that. You know? 
Or, or vice versa. Joneses do this, so stop crying like a little baby and get up. Because in our house, we don't let boys cry like that. In other houses, they might, but we don't. So buckle up, rub some dirt on it, get going. That's how our house rolls. Every house has a way of doing its things. Every house has its quirks. Well, in the household of God, the same is the case. We have a common father in salvation. We are marked in his household, and he has a way of doing things. He has conduct for us. He has things that he celebrates. He has things that he disdains. He has a way of doing things. Paul, as a fellow brother in the family of God, expects his siblings to know how one ought to conduct themselves. Uh, this is true in my family. The older kids often, and it's a beautiful thing to see because it helps when you have as many kids as we do to have some of the older kids have a little bit of common sense. And they'll, you know, they'll kick one of the little ones and say, you shouldn't do that. You know, you're not allowed to do that. You know, and I, I love it when I hear that because I'm like, yes, they are enforcing the household code. That's what Paul is doing. You need to know how to conduct yourself in the church. You need to know the life of the church. Uh, in addition to knowing how to behave, you have to know what to believe. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So, so, so Paul writes about the Lord's church, and he starts by talking about conduct in life, and then he moves into talking about confessing the Lord. In verse 16, he is quoting from an early confession of the church. In fact, some of your Bibles will have stylistically indented it so that you see that this is coming from an early confession, creed, or perhaps even a hymn that was commonly sung in the churches in the early first century. In the New Testament, we see references to confessions and creeds and hymns cited, which shows that the historic spiritual concern for the church was to have pure doctrine and pure worship in terms of what she believes about God. We are to have orthodoxy in what we believe about God that relates to confessing the Lord and orthopraxy in terms of our conduct and our life. In this creed, in this hymn, we see that the church uh, has beliefs about God and Christ and humanity and sin and salvation and mission. Speaking of mission... Uh, something that is often not uh, included in many confessions, but here it is, it is included in this ancient confession. Along with doctrine, there is the duty of mission. Speaking of mission, we see the phrase proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. This is in reference to the church's mission to send saints as missionaries to the ends of the earth. And why do we carry on in mission? Why does the beat go on? Well, for starters, it is a matter of obedience and love. Jesus said, he who loves me obeys me. Uh, further, in addition to obedience and love, it is also a matter of worship. As John Piper has succinctly and eloquently put it, and we often quote it in our worship services to remind ourselves of this, that mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. Now, the Apostle Paul makes this point with this hymn, this creed, which weaves mission in with worship of the Son of God, who is, what does the text say, revealed, vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed, taken up in glory. Now ascended in the heavens, by His Spirit, the Son is leading the church. Again, I will build my church. Wait for the Spirit. The Spirit comes. The church is born. And now, through the Spirit, in union with Christ, Christ leads. He is the head of His church. We read in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, with regard to the work of the Spirit in the church, how the Spirit specifically, Acts 20, 28, raises up pastoral leaders. Luke tells us, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Luke goes on to say, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. This brings us from conduct in life, confessing the Lord, to thirdly here, as it relates to the Lord Church, caring leadership. With 1 Timothy 3 in front of us, it is worth noting that this, this section, the larger pericope, is about raising up leaders for the church. Look at, look at how verse 1 begins in the text. It is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he aspires to do. Paul then goes on in these verses to spell out what church leaders are supposed to look like. 
He wanted to make sure that there were no Michael Scotts running the office, you know. He didn't want any, uh, you know, crack in the White House, if you will. Too soon? Too soon. Okay. But, you know, he wanted to make sure there were no Hillsong-style documentaries of corruption in the church. Uh, And, you know, in every instance where we see corruption in the church, we see corruption in the church because they're not obeying what is listed here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You know, there, there is that attack that is made against believers. Well, believers are hypocrites, or what about this, or what about that, or I was raised in a church, or my dad was a Christian, and he left my mom, and what about, what about, what about, what about? But in every instant, it is a violation of what Scripture says with regard to the Lord's church. Conduct in life, confessing the Lord, carrying leadership. It's in violation of it. What Paul spells out here in this chapter is what he requires, what they require in terms of having carrying leadership in the church. And mind you, this isn't a list of moral and spiritual qualities for super-Christians. This is the expectation of every believer, and hence it is expected of those who are in leadership who are held to a higher standard. We, we, we see instances of hypocrisy in the church, and wherever we see them, it is because they are in violation of the Word of God. They either ignore the Word, or worse, they, they spit upon the Word of God. In a month like the one that has just passed, I, I can't tell you how many churches I've seen with rainbows up and all the rest. You say, this isn't what the Word says with regard to our leadership, our confession, our conduct. Why is this important to... Paul. Why is this important to the pastoral epistles? Because the church is God's family. I don't let anyone babysit my kids. I'm very particular about who I let around my children. I have to really know you. I have to really trust you. My wife and I, these are treasures that God has given to us, our children. This is important to Scripture because this is the house of God. These are God's children. We, we want to make sure that God's children are cared for. Further, this is, the church is said to be Christ's bride in Scripture. Uh, my, I don't let anyone near my daughters. Granted, they're not even of, of age to even entertain liking a boy or anything like that. But, I, I mean, when the time comes, when my first daughter was born, I bought a shotgun and named it after her. I'm not going to let anyone around my, my kids, my, da- my daughters. I'm, I'm, raising, I'm raising them in a particular way that they would be honored, that they would be holy, that you know, when the right man comes along, there's going to be a specific way that that's handled because that's my daughter, for Pete's sake. The church is Christ's bride. The church is Christ's, Christ's family, the Father's children in the Son. Look at verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, if any man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Paul wants to make sure that the church is cared for, that, 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 that the bride is protected and provided for, that, that the children are looked after, that the, that the church is understood rightly as a household. This means that we are kin, brothers and sisters. It means that we really are brothers and sisters. We have kin in the Spirit. Now, in the ancient world, kinship bonds were critical to one's flourishing in society. If you didn't have the right kinship bonds, you you were going to be in trouble in the ancient world. And this remains true today because it is is just a, a kind of basic anthropological, sociological phenomenon that children tend to fare better in homes that have a mom and a dad who are committed to one another in a bond of love. We see disproportionately where there's absenteeism with regard to fathers in the home. You have higher rates of crime, higher rates of incarceration, higher rates of substance abuse, and so on and so forth. Of course, by God's grace, there are those who who make it through, and that's wonderful. But the point that I'm emphasizing is tight families are key to flourishing. And so, too, this is understood in Scripture to explain what we have become. We have become family. And prior to becoming family, mind you, we were orphaned, and worse than being orphaned, spiritually we were enemies of God. And so for God to welcome enemies into His home is absolutely mind-blowing because no one does that. We don't welcome enemies into our home. We don't, we, don't, we don't call enemies our children. We don't adopt enemies into our home as, as family. And yet, that's exactly what God has done. He has chosen in His grace to look upon our sin and to receive the sacrifice of His perfect Son 
and, and, and that perfection and that righteousness to give that to us so that by the Son, we can become sons and daughters of Him. This is what we call gospel, what we call good news. Enemies being made sons. Kin. And in, in, in kinship, then, you have this flourishing. And, and that's what Christ's church is. It is intended to be a place where we flourish. It is, it is intended to be a place where God's people are cared for. It is intended to be a place where God's people are equipped for mission and reminded Lord's Day after Lord's Day of this good news and our calling to carry it to the ends of the earth. Now please turn from this text here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to Titus chapter 3. Highlighting and building upon some ecclesiology and missiology from the pastoral epistles this morning as a timely message for us as a church, having said goodbye to missionaries that we love, who, we, who we've sent to the ends of the earth to reach the unreached, and then processing and reminding ourselves on a week such as this, our, our first weekend without them, to say, what, is, what are we doing? What is our role? What is our, what is our mission? What should we be about? What should we be focusing on? Please find your way to the closing verses of the last chapter there. Chapter 3 of Titus. Again, this is an ancient letter. It is written by a real guy, the Apostle Paul, to another real guy, Titus. It is a pastoral, epistolary section. So it is all about God's heart for God's church. Paul is on his way to Nicopolis, which is in western uh, Greece. I'll put a picture up here so that you can picture it. He's on his way to Nicopolis. He is writing to Titus, who is on the island of Crete. And there is something significant about Crete and why I'm taking us here in Crete, because I believe it provides contemporary application for us on this Lord's Day. Titus chapter 3, draw your eyes please at verse 12. He writes, When I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way back so that nothing is lacking for them. As you can see, this is a very personal uh, uh, letter. Uh, Paul is naming names of people, names in the congregation. Just like in our congregation, if I said Marlon and Jimena, or I talk about different people in the church, you know, if you're a part of the church, you, you know those people. I think this is one of the things that is missing uh, in contemporary church today, particularly in mega churches, where uh, the pastors and the preachers are just not connected to the audience. And so you hear a sermon in a church that basically could be preached anywhere in the world because it's not local and specific to the people. I love bringing up names in the congregation and speaking pastorally to specifically our church. Uh, we're not preaching to people on the internet. We are preaching to the people who are in the room. Real people in real life facing real hurdles, real circumstances. In fact, this is a slogan that we use around here at the church, real life, real people, real faith. We see both a, a real mission uh, in addition to this, and, and both with mission we see friendship. We see that kindred spirit among them. Artemis, Tychicus, right? Uh, Zenus, Apollos. These are, these are guys that are sacrificing for sake of the gospel. Verse 14, draw your eyes back at the text. Our, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now at this point, Paul was away from his friend uh, Titus. Uh, this makes me think of our missionaries and being away from them, but it's a good thing that we are away. As much as it is emotional, it is a good thing. We, we want them to be doing what they're doing. Paul's away from Titus, but it is a good thing because they have moved for mission. And moving for mission is what we do. And Paul is concerned about that mission. He left Titus in Crete to keep working on the mission as he went on to continue spreading the gospel as an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul and maybe Timothy went on to Ephesus and they had some crazy stuff happen there, which is... Uh, you know, uh, you can read about in 1 Timothy in the book of Acts. So Paul goes on to Macedonia. And through it all, his heart is with his friend and, and for the mission. And with his heavy heart, he writes this letter, and it reads with paternal affection. Which brings me to the next point on your outline. We move from the Lord's church to letter to my child. Go back to the opening chapter of this text. Titus chapter 1. We see Paul calling... Uh, on Titus with paternal language. He refers to Titus as his child. He refers to Titus as a spiritual son. In Christ they were family. In Christ they were kin. 
In Christ, they were servants of God on mission with the gospel. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. But even at the proper time manifested, even His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child... In common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul views Titus as his child. Again, we see that kin. They are uh, given intimate family relationship, Paul says. By what? A common faith and a common Lord. We saw that language in 1 Timothy 3.16, the common confession. Here we see it again in Titus, a common faith. You see, it was faith in Christ that bound them, and it was through Christ that they were made family. Now, here's the thing that is radical about this, if you don't have the historical, cultural, social background in mind. Paul is Jewish. Titus is a Greek. Greeks and Jews do not get along in this culture. The Gentiles and Jews do not get along in this culture. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.3 about how Titus was a Greek, so we know he was a Greek. And why, why does Paul mention this? Why is this significant? Because it shows that in Christ, ethnic divisions that plagued their culture were being torn down. Theologically, it shows that the covenant that was given by God to the Jewish people also included the blessing of the nations as it was promised. So Christ as the Messiah of Israel is also the Savior of the nations. Theologically, it shows the Gentile inclusion in this age as we await for the king to come and bring his kingdom. Theologically, that's the case, but socioculturally and ethnically, it shows that God is tearing down the dividing walls of men. For a Jewish man to call a Greek his son, you have to understand how radical that was. That what, you, you, didn't see, you didn't see things like that. It would be like in the Jim Crow or something to have you know, I don't know, a Klansman referring to an African-American as, as his son. You'd go, what happened to the Klansman? Someone changed his heart. What happened for this nationalistic J Jewish man, Saul of Tarsus, who was, who was known for his violence, for his, his vehement attacks against the church, that he has now been transformed by the grace of God in Christ and is now calling a Greek his own son? The God of Israel was redeeming the Greco-Roman pagan world. And he was, he was making members of that fallen world now members in his household. And calling Titus son, Paul is unpacking not just the, the, the sociocultural dimension, but also soteriology and ecclesiology, showing that Titus is in an intimate role with Paul, who is an heir of the promises of God in Abram and Isaac and Jacob. The intro of this letter is then solidifying that Titus was not only kin to Paul, but also he was an apostolic designate of Paul. He represented Paul. And whoever read this knew, like, Titus is on par with Paul. Titus the Greek represents Paul. If you got beef with Paul, you got beef with Titus and vice versa. Titus is not only referenced uh, here, here in this text in a powerful way, but when you compare it to the book of Acts, you see something interesting because we don't have Titus referenced in the Acts narrative. We find out things about him in Paul's epistles, and from them we see where he was at in various places in the mission. This reminds us that Acts is not exhaustive. So you think of the many names and people who were a part of sending folks out on mission and how they labored together, rolling through Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul and Titus. How they split ways so as to divide and conquer for mission. Titus led missions on Paul's behalf. For example, Paul sent Titus to Corinth a handful of times to minister the word, make disciples, and report back to Paul. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 7 and 2 Corinthians 8 as well. In this case, Paul sent Titus, as we were reading here, to the city of Crete to live in the city, to love the city, and to strengthen the church there as a home base for missions. And I will apply that to us in just a moment. Look at the next verse, verse 5. What does he say? For this reason I left you in Crete. Okay. So Paul left him in ministry in the city of Crete. This moves us from the Lord's church, letter to my child, thirdly, to living in the city. 
Crete was the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean, lying approximately 60 miles southeast of Greece, 110 miles southwest of Turkey. In size, it is 160 miles long from east to west, with a width approximately of 36 miles, an area of some 3,200 square miles. To put that in perspective, Los Angeles has a land area of 469 miles. If you look up here, I'll give you a figure so that you can wrap yourself around the differences. Right? It makes LA look quite small. So Crete is a major city in the ancient world. In church history, it was a strategic hub for gospel witness. We read about Paul being there in Acts chapter 27. Because Paul left Timothy there, it stands to reason that he was there for some time. Paul leaves Titus there. He's there for some time. Paul had extended ministry in Crete before his second imprisonment and execution. Now the cities in the first century, where Christ started his church, the cities proved to be strategic hubs for gospel work. This actually continues today. Uh, and sociologists and historians can, you know, can labor to spin the ink on it, and I'll reference a few in just a moment. We think of our missionaries even anecdotally in our own case. Los Angeles, a major city in the world, is a hub for sending missionaries to reach the unreached. Our missionaries that we sent out, this is their home base. And through the charity of this church, through the giving of this church, through the prayers of this church, in this major city of the world, we're able to send people out. We have other missionaries that we support who are working on reaching unreached peoples. And Los Angeles provides, like Crete, a wonderful place for doing it because cities, if you're talking about urban geography and sociology, provide the kinds of resources for doing what we're doing. If you really want to dig into it, there's a noted scholar named Dr. Rodney Stark who wrote a really helpful book entitled The Rise of Christianity, in which he documents how historically the disciples spread through the ancient world. Dr. Stark attributes the spread to the conversion of, of people in these major cities through social networks and groups through cities that led to mass conversions that changed the world. He wrote a subsequent book that is very helpful, maybe we'll do it in book club one of these, one of these months, called Cities of God. The subtitle is The Real Story of How Christianity Became an Urban Movement and Conquered Rome. In, in this book, Dr. Stark analyzes the largest cities of the Roman Empire alongside the flow of Christianity. And surprise, surprise, where the big cities were, that's where the flow goes. Dr. Stark documents how believers use cities strategically for the spreading of the gospel, which is what Dr. Luke documents in the book of Acts. And it's worth noting that with regard to Dr. Stark, he is not writing like Luke from an evangelical perspective. He writes as a historian and a sociologist, and he's just documenting the bare facts of the history. The spread of the church from the time of the apostles into, into uh, the early church all the way up to us happened through having cities where you had churches that were major hubs. Crete was a rough place to be. It was a hard city like Los Angeles. The culture was hostile to Christian faith and practice. Paul himself spoke about the hostile culture of the Cretans. In verse 12, if you draw your eyes at verse 12, he quotes a Cretan poet who characterized the Cretans as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This, of course, is intentional on Paul's part, for you look at verse 2 and note that Paul spoke of God as not being a liar. Paul says that God does not lie. He is, he is playing on the common phrase that saw the culture and the city as a place of liars. Along with this, Paul is contrasting the God of the Bible with the gods of the Greco-Roman culture. You see, the Greek or the Cretan gods, they were known for being deceitful, for being liars. In school, you likely had to read Greek mythology, and so you know of the shenanigans of these gods. We, we, we read them like myth, but in those days, they believed them in the same way that our culture believes in its gods. We don't have Zeus today, but we got Oprah and Osteen's gods. We got the gods of Deepak Chopra and Tom Cruise, uh, the god of the secret, the god of the nation of Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and more. And when you start picking on them, you will be viewed with disdain. If you dare to contradict the gods of the culture and their doctrines, you will be hated on. Just contradict the sexual ethics of our secular gods, as we saw uh, the god of pride last month, and you'll be charged with a hate crime. And intolerance in particular in cities, it is, it is ramped up. Everywhere you go in the city, you are bombarded with the message of the gods of the city. There is no neutral block in the city. 
The billboards are in your face when you drive. The commercials are in your home when and if you turn on the TV. The ads flash on your computer. Your children are forced at a very early age to hear language, see images, and be fed ideas that undermine this book that we are sitting before. In our public and even private schools, children's minds are being formed by this and fed ideas that will take deep root in their souls. At an early age when their brains are forming and minds are uncritical, a foundation of secular thought is laid by our secular government in education. And tragically, even in most private schools, even those that claim to be Christian, we see secularization of the minds of little Christian uh, children because the private educators are themselves products of the secular city. When you think about it, kids are basically sent to secular church all day, five days a week, where they are taught the doctrines of the city. Evolutionary anthropology, relativist ethics, progressive morals, postmodern philosophy, radical sexual ethics, and more. And there they are given friends in the city, peers who will shape their desires and their tastes. As parents, we pray but the math is what it is. The secular forces and gods get eight hours. They get eight hours with the kids in government secular schools and even private schools. And then they get two to five hours with secular media and friends. And, and about one to three hours we have, in terms of what stats show that what parents spend with their children, to combat the 15 hours a day. It's a scary thing. Being a Christian parent in a city like Los Angeles or Crete was hard. It, 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 and with this, there's a fear that drives many Christians out of the city, fearing its schools, dreading its billboards, and what have you. We fail to see that original sin lurks outside of the city as well. Because the problem of humanity is not a problem of the city versus the suburbs. The problem of humanity is the problem of the heart. And so wherever humans are, whether it's cozy suburbs or countrysides, that problem is going to be there. But in a city where it is dense, it is amplified. It is amplified. And so for us on a week like this where we find ourselves in a crazy city, we can find ourselves going, oh man, why are we here? Maybe I should just go be a missionary. Maybe I should move somewhere where it's different. Or maybe I should... We have a text like this in front of us reminding us of the importance of cities for sending missionaries out. That is exactly what we are doing, Delray Church. The city shapes the nation. So running from the city is futile because either way, the city will find you, the city will claim your children, the city will own your soul with its slick advertising and twisted truth claims. The only thing to combat it is the Word of God by the Spirit of God on fire for the mission of God. Along with the dark spiritual pressures of the city, the city is hard because of its economics and its rapid pace. It is expensive to live in cities. Uh, the grind of the city is on your back. You hustle to make very little. You're spread thin. If I can't get an amen, I can get an ouch, right? I, am I alone? Or you, got, you guys are just crushing it in Los Angeles. You're spread thin. You make little. It, it's, it's hard. Titus is in Crete. He knows this. You and I in Los Angeles, we know this. But the mission, the mission requires us to stay and to sacrifice to have hubs like this in major cities for sending out gospel witness. We can resist the pace of the city and live slower, trusting God our provider. We can slay the demons of temptation in the city, turning off the messages that bombard us and protect our children from the darkness. We can refuse to let our daughters be sexualized, our sons to be juvenilized, our homes to be secularized. Now, we have zero power as parents to be sure over the hearts of our children because salvation belongs to the Lord. But we can stand and we can fight as He has commanded us, trusting His grace to work through our efforts as He wills, persistent in the gospel for the good of our homes and for the honor of Christ in the city. Paul says, I left you in Crete for a reason. And he goes on to speak about the mission of the church and the city. I would submit that God has us, Delray Church, in Los Angeles for this mission, and we need to be reminded of this as we are sending missionaries out. We are in a strategic place to have a healthy church. A church that could grow, a church that could become a hub of mission for sending more Marlins and Jimenez and making a dent in the unfinished work of the Great Commission. We cannot send what we are not, so we must be faithful in this mission field. 
Our own Marlin, this was a part of his goal. It, you know, with a passion for mission, he knew, I, I need to do this in, in my local church first. I, I need to be raised up and be ordained and be a pastor and learn what a local church looks like and learn the health of this so that I can go out and I can recreate this in the world by God's grace. If you are on mission, you need the encouragement that this passage offers this morning. Because as Paul speaks to Titus, there is a word for us to hear at Delray Church to stay, to stand, to labor. And if we don't hear that message from the Word and the Spirit doesn't move, we will be discouraged, we will give up, we will pack up, we will move out for greener pastures that don't exist, frankly, in a fallen world. Paul writes, shaping an ecclesiology of the city, correcting misconceptions of the city so that they would remain on mission. If we despise the city, you know what happens? The church becomes a fortress that we're building to keep ourselves safe. The church becomes a fortress, and it's, it's us against them. We build up our walls. we gotta, we got to keep safe, and, and we're, we're going we're gonna to just you know, hold the fort down, failing to see that Christ hasn't called us to build forts. He has called us to go as a force. If we despise the city, we will become building fortresses. If we detest the city, the church will become a boat for escape. The church plots its escape. It builds its canoe. It leaves its island. Having no compassion for those who are left behind, we are out of there. I call this the Jonah syndrome, where Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh. Jonah hated the city, didn't want to go to the city because of, its, uh, because of prejudices and discrimination and grudges and what have you, and he ran from the city, and the Lord had his way. Jonah lacked compassion. Jonah lacked an understanding of the mission of God, and, and so he literally jumped in a boat. If we despise the city, the church builds fortresses. If we detest the city, the church becomes a boat for escape. If we defeat the city, the church becomes a business. This is taking place with the trends of the megachurch, where the church is seen as an institution that is there for the sake of growing its numbers. More bodies in the building, more bucks in the budget. Rather than seeing people as sinners who are dead, these folks water down the message and they trick people into attendance, not repentance. They, they use the lost for their own agenda to grow and, and, and to amass what becomes a business. They need the numbers so they can publish their books and get their religious broadcasting going. And it's simply business. And they view themselves in contra to the city so the church acts in a hostile way so as to defeat the city. Despise, detest, defeat. Finally, if we desire the, 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 the city, next, if we desire the city, the church will become a brothel. A brothel is where prostitution occurs, where people sell their bodies to sin. Spiritual prostitution is selling out of our souls, what belongs to God, and the giving of, of ourselves over to sin. The Bible speaks of sin as defilement, a soiling from the world. When we desire the city, we crave its attention. We succumb to its doctrines. We prostitute our souls. And the church compromises and becomes just like the city. Major so-called Christian denominations have done this. You see, the city says marriage is old-fashioned. And so the church abandons its commitment to traditional marriage. The city says there are other gods. And so the church abandons that Christ is the only way. The city says your sermons are too long and too dogmatic. So the church gives short sermonettes for Christianettes that sound more like motivational talks. Soon the preacher looks like a comic or a motivational speaker or even a politician. And the church's worship looks more like a rock show. Soon the worship is indistinguishable from the world and the church carries itself like the world, thinks like the world, behaves like the world. A compromised church loses its power to change the city around itself. Next, if we deplete the city, the church becomes a big consumer. And by this I mean there are those believers who are merely using the cities for its goods. It's the worst of colonialism. We exploit, we expand, we are just simply here to use what the city has. In a place like Los Angeles, this is of course the case because the city has lots of goods to give us. This is the second most populous, the second most populous city in the United States right after New York. We have 3.8 million people living here. We, we've got all kinds of industry that is here. So people come to make it in Hollywood, or people come to get a graduate degree, or people come for the industry. They're here to get goods from the city. And when those goods run out, they tap out and they're gone because they haven't viewed the city as a mission field. 
Speaking of 3.8 million people here, you know that Los Angeles has 17 of the most unreached people group communities in North America. Includes the largest population of Tehrani Persian Jews in North America, as well as substantial populations of Arab Muslims. This city is the home of more than 140 countries speaking 224 different identified languages. The gospel of Jesus is to go to the nations, Delray Church, and we have the nations all around us. Think about where God has placed us. Think about Los Angeles's ethnic enclaves, Chinatown, Filipino town, Koreatown, Little Armenia, Little Ethiopia, I could go on. Think of the diversity, not just ethnically, but also socioeconomically. We are a city of rich and a city of poor, a city of mogul tycoons and a city of modest tenants, a city of palaces and a city of prisons filled with those who literally have nothing a city of criminals and a city of innocence, a city of oppressors and the oppressed, for the gospel to penetrate and bring together all these divergent subcultures and peoples. To hear like Paul calling a Greek his son in the city of Los Angeles, it, it's absolutely incredible. Do you believe, church, that God is worthy to be worshipped in Los Angeles? Do you believe that? And tragically, when we look at church statistics in the city, we find little proof that God is worthy to be worshipped in the city. Churches closing their doors in the city, having little effect on the life of the city itself. The darkness is thick, brothers and sisters. False religion encroaches us. The Los Angeles, California Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints over here in Santa Monica, on Santa Monica Boulevard, is the second largest Mormon temple in the world. It is just three years older than this church. Los Angeles is the headquarters of Celebrity Center of Scientology. It's the headquarters of many cults. We are in a dark place. And yet God uses these dark places as we see with Crete, as we see in church history. God's gospel takes over cities, and in those cities he builds churches as bases for propelling people to the ends of the earth. So then the answer isn't to despise, detest, defeat, desire, or deplete. The answer is what? that we disciple the city, brothers and sisters. And therein, the church becomes a beacon. We become the North Star to point people to Christ and say, there He is. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. And so on every Lord's Day, you're going to hear it proclaimed here that there's one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father has sent His Son to live a life that, 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 that we needed to live to pay a debt that we ourselves owed. And He has done that for us in His life and in His death and in His resurrection. And you can come to Him and confess your sins and be forgiven and be set free and become a son and a daughter of the Father, God in heaven. In the closing verses of the book in front of us in Titus, Paul charges Titus to train Christians in Crete to reach the city. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Paul talks about taking care of one another. The key for fruitfulness was found in the church on mission in the city. To secure the mission of the church, this letter is concerned with their belief and their behavior. It's concerned as well with their leadership. If the church is going to thrive, the people must be holding to sound doctrine, living it out, and being cared for with good shepherds. So in Titus 1.5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete. And then he goes on to say, So that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. So again, we see living in the city is important. Next on your outline, we see leadership in the church is important. Paul lays out the qualifications in this third chapter for leaders. He says, verse 6, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. The pastors are viewed as stewards who are taking care of the household. That's what a steward is. It's someone who looks after a household. This is a wonderful passage to be in front of us. Uh, on this day, because as I've noted several times already in the message this morning, we said goodbye to missionaries, but those missionaries have also left a hole in terms of, of leadership. And we believe, as, we, as I referenced in Acts earlier, Acts 20, 28, that the Holy Spirit raises up in the church leaders for the church, for shepherding the church. And so as we think of sending out our best, I think pastorally, well, who's going to fill these shoes? Who's going to be next? 
Who will be the next men that the Spirit raises up to, to, to help us secure a home base in the city of Los Angeles for sending missionaries out in the world? And further, who's going to be next that we can send out? And who's the Spirit moving upon? And, 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 and what is He going to do? It's all really exciting, but it requires work. And so we have these pastoral epistles reminding us of this. Speaking of the work, Alexander Strach, a, a, a noted author who writes about leadership in the church, he writes, Some people say you can't expect laymen to, to rear their families, work all day, and shepherd a local church. That statement is simply not true. Many people rear families, work, and give substantial hours of time to community service, clubs, athletic activities, and religious institutions. The cults have built up large lay movements that survive primarily because of volunteer time and efforts of the members. We Bible-believing Christians have become lazy, soft, pay-it-to-be-done group of Christians. It is positively amazing how much people can accomplish when they are motivated to work towards a goal they love. I've seen people build and remodel houses in their spare time, for example. I've also seen men discipline themselves to gain phenomenal knowledge of the Scriptures. The real problem then lies not in men's limited energy and time, but in false ideas about work, about Christian living, about life's priorities, and about what our mission is. And so as we send out, there is going to be empty seats that need to be filled, and we cry out to God, keep raising up leaders. Christ is worthy to be praised in Los Angeles. Christ is worthy to have healthy churches in Los Angeles who are sending missionaries to the ends of the earth. Draw your eyes at verse 10. Paul is concerned not just with shepherding, but he is also concerned about the wolves that find their way in. In verse 10 he says, There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Paul talks about empty talkers. He talks about the know-it-alls. You know a term that has fallen out of use that I single-handedly would like to just bring back. So just hashtag this all over social media. It's a great word. It's called ultra-crepidarian. Ultra-crepidarian. An ultra-crepidarian, look it up, it's a real word, is someone who gives opinions on matters that is far beyond his or her knowledge. Our our culture is filled with ultra-crepidarians. And churches are as well. I, I mean, in... In 25 plus years of doing this, I, I've encountered more ultra-Crypterians in the church than in the culture. Uh, people watch a couple of YouTubes and know everything about the Bible or whatever and want to argue about it. And Paul says those kinds, that kind of stuff is going to come up. You're going to have empty talkers, deceivers, who are going to come in and do these kinds of things. And, and here's what it does. It wastes your resources from sending out mission. It, it, it wastes your emotions and it discourages you. Verse 12, he says, one of themselves a prophet of their own, right? Cretans are liars, evil beasts, glutton. This testimony is true. You must reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. Verse 14, not paying attention to these, these myths that turn men away from the truth, right? They profess to know God, verse 16, but by their deeds they deny them. Paul wants the church to stay on mission. He wants the church to stay focused. And, and he calls it out and he goes, look, you've got to watch out for this stuff because it gets us off mission. The final point on the outline this morning, we move from leadership in the congregation, living in the city, letter to my child, Lord's church, to lordship and creation. Look at how the chapter began with this weighty vision of God, of a God who does not lie, of a God who is sovereign, of a God who chooses. We read it already, but look back at Titus chapter 1. Look at it again. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen, the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of a God, our Savior. Move to chapter 2, please, and find your way to verse 11. See the weighty vision of God who has come into creation. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. God has saved you to purify a people for Himself who will serve Him 
God has placed us, Delray Church, in a very unique place that is like Crete and just like Titus. We have unfinished work to do. He closes the book and throughout the book weaves in this, this high view of Christ as Lord over creation. The kindness of our God and Savior, His love for mankind has appeared. Draw your eyes at chapter 3, verse 4. He saved us, Titus 3, 5, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly in Christ Jesus our Savior. He's poured out His Spirit. He's launched His church. He's regenerated dead sinners. He's taken us as enemies and made us into sons and daughters. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Mind you that gates are for keeping bad guys out. So in that metaphor, we are not the ones with gates up scared of hell. We are the ones who are storming the gates of hell. And we must keep this in mind. We have a mission to do. Last week was a, a heavy week, a sad week to say goodbye to people we love who are going to the ends of the earth. But we have to do it again and again and again. And we're going to come back every Lord's Day and be reminded of the gospel and that Christ is worthy, and that we mustn't give up or be discouraged. Thomas Edison is quoted as saying that many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. And in terms of mission, in terms of, of church, I think of that for us as Delray Church. We're so close, so much work to do, and God is worthy of it all. I close with an illustration from Dr. Howard Hendricks, uh, he was a professor, passed away some years ago. He tells of a time when he saw a young reporter interview Bud Wilkinson, who was then the head coach of the top-ranked Oklahoma Sooners football team. The reporter enthusiastically bubbled, Coach Wilkinson, tell us what contribution collegiate football has made towards physical fitness in America. He was rather stunned when Wilkinson replied, I do not believe that football has made any contribution to physical fitness in America. And the reporter said, well, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Nothing? And, and he said, I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 50,000 people in the stands desperately needing exercise. I thought that was great. And, and Dr. Hendricks then concluded, uh, and sadly, he said, well, that, that sounds like a description of most churches. Sadly, Christianity in America has become a spectator sport. You go to Sunday, you sit, you watch while the, while the professionals perform. After all, that's, that's what they get paid to do, isn't it? But me, you know, I'm just, I'm just a regular, you know, I'm just a layman. I'm just a regular person. But you know what? There is no such animal in the Bible. In the New Testament, there is no special class of persons clergy and the non-clergy or priests or whatever every believer in christ is a part of the royal priesthood and every believer in christ has been given this mission that we collectively do not everyone will be sent into the 1040 window not everyone's going to get up here and you know preach sermons not everyone's going to go off to seminary and learn a bunch of stuff not everyone's going to fill in the blank but collectively this is the charge of the church this text this morning, I hope, hit you well. It's a personal and contextual and missional application of God's Word in its context to our context, which hopefully will drive us on mission and addressing real people in real life with real faith and a real God. A God who Himself gives us His name and discloses to us who He is, Father, Son, and Spirit. And His servants who have written these texts, like Paul, they get real with us. And remind us, you have been placed in the city for a reason. In response, let's get real with God. Let's seek Him to burden us for this place and to resource us with our deficits and to grow us for sake of having more hubs and more urban centers that can do more damage against the kingdom of darkness. And again, missions exist because worship doesn't. So let us respond to His word in worship as we come to the communion table. We have before us the pictures of what God has done in Christ for us. His body broken, His blood shed, that we would be reconciled to Him both in life and in death. He is worthy to be praised. The beat goes on, church. Let us respond in worship and communion. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. 
I thank you for the reminders in the New Testament, especially in the pastoral epistles, of the mission that you give to your people. We need to have hubs that are strategically located around the world for sending workers into the harvest. We need to have hubs that are cities on a hill whose light will shine and will not be contained. Uh, Lord, we long to be such a hub in this little corner of West Los Angeles. Lord, that you would bring growth to your church. Lord, that you would raise up leaders who are caring and loving and compassionate and knowledgeable, unified and spirit-filled. Lord, as we come to the table, we are reminded what was done for us. We are so thankful for what was done for us. And Lord, I pray that as we come, you would draw us in greater repentance and faith. And if there are any here who do not know you, I pray, as we read in Titus 3, that your spirit would be poured out, regenerate, and bring life here today. For the, for the name and the sake of Christ, we ask this. Amen.